0: Welcome to New Thinking for a New World, a Tilburg Foundation podcast. I am Alan Stoga, your host. Each week, I bring you conversations with people who think differently about the great issues that are shaping our world. Geopolitics, disruptive tech, mass migration, the changing climate, culture wars, all of it is grist for our mill. I hope you enjoy listening. I also hope you will let me know what you think and that you join the conversation at telbergfoundation.org. And now for today's episode of New Thinking for a New World. Regardless of where you live, the odds are that you are experiencing the warmest year of your life, punctuated with extreme weather, droughts and floods, super cyclones and hurricanes, raging forest fires, or other unusually intense natural disasters. The daily news reports read like the storyline of a bad Hollywood climate disaster movie. Unfortunately, it's not a movie. It's the new normal. It's an old adage that you can't do anything about the weather, but clearly humanity is trying to do something about climate change. Arguably, though, not enough and certainly not fast enough. So what next? One line of attack is called solar radiation management, SRM. Essentially, trying to reduce the amount of solar radiation hitting the planet and hence warming the planet. It's either an obvious approach or crazy dangerous, depending on where you sit. My guests today, Luke Eisman and Andrew Song, are in the former category. They are pioneers in trying to deflect solar radiation away from the Earth. Welcome, Luke and Andrew, to New Thinking for a New World. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Let's start with the concept and drill down to what you're actually doing. Solar radiation management is the idea, I think it's the idea, that the Earth can be cooled by reflecting some of the sun's rays back into space. To a non-scientist like me, and I haven't been in a physics class for about four decades, that sounds more science fiction than science. What am I missing?
1: It is science fiction or was science fiction until, until pretty recently. Um, People debate many elements of this. What they don't debate is the science. It's very clear that if we reduce the watts per square meter slightly over the surface of the Earth of energy from the sun that is reaching us, we can buy ourselves more time. Andrew came up with a with a great analogy. It's like sunscreen for the planet. It doesn't solve the problem forever, but it prevents, for now, a some of the worst harms of a warming planet
0: so how realistic is that sunscreen it's a big planet Um, it's rapidly warming you have baked in uh accumulated gases in the atmosphere what can srm actually do well what's the promise or maybe the premise of srm
1: fortunately you don't have to trust us or even actual scientists on this you can look at the historic record of a special category of volcano called stratovolcanoes. They are called such because their eruptions result in material reaching the stratosphere, this layer of the Earth's atmosphere that starts between roughly 12 and 20 kilometers off the surface of the planet, depending on your location. And the biggest stratovolcanoes have put a lot of the same chemical that we're using, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. The most famous example is Mount Pinatubo. It's one of the first modern eruptions for which we had pretty ubiquitous, high-quality satellite imagery coverage. And this one volcanic eruption dropped the average temperature of the planet by half a degree Celsius for two years. Remind listeners when Pinatubo last exploded. Uh, Andrew might know this offhand, I think early 90s. Uh, 1991
2: yeah nineteen ninety one is when the uh i mean there might have been a smaller eruptions since then, but uh, the one that was causing the the cooling was in nineteen ninety one
0: so the basic idea is to replicate what nature did does and
2: presumably has done throughout the planet's history right. I mean, this is why we have countries now and the nation of hawaii or the the island of Hawaii <laughs> because of earthquakes and and volcanoes, yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> In terms of cooling the planet,
0: the idea is to mimic, it's almost biomimicry, right? We're going to mimic what Pinatubo did, but on a global scale. And and with 100% less lava. Well, by definition. (laughs) But question, in the historic record, have we ever seen a sustained Pinatubo effect? No.
1: That's to say, not not just a
0: one-off, but a sustained impact.
1: No. Well, we've seen sustained as in this happens over the course of history. And we've seen sustained as in, you know, Pinatubo happened and no huge changes to the atmosphere on a permanent basis occurred. What we've seen is a natural experiment repeated over time. And what we're proposing is really to, and you got it right away, Alan, it is biomimicry we need to do, unfortunately, because of our carbon-based geoengineering of the atmosphere over the last couple hundred years. there's an urgency to this. I don't think we should do the slightest bid and wait decades to see if there's the slightest consequence. This is an emergency. People are dying every day because of climate change. This is accelerating. And as as a, a friend of yours and ours has published, we're hitting planetary tipping points where, you know, We should continue to expect the unexpected unless we take dramatic action like biomimicry of volcanoes in our case. Let me ask you
0: about context. The reason I asked about Pinatubo date is that clearly between 91 and 2023, there has been a dramatic shift in the context. That is to say, the accumulation of gases in the atmosphere, the warming of the planet, et cetera, et cetera. So the last time this happened, it was a very different Earth. Do you worry that in this context, put aside your work for a second? We'll get there. In this context, if we have Pinatubo tomorrow, blow at the same magnitude, the consequences could be different because the context is different.
1: And that's a non-scientist asking a science question. Um, I believe that with all of this, you know, atmospheric science is complicated, and we are as well, non-scientists. The fundamental effect that putting a given quantity of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere will have, will vary a bit based on wind and exact altitude and uh, latitude of injection. But fundamentally, what we're doing is putting a particle that reflects some solar energy into a layer of the atmosphere above the troposphere. So we're reducing by some amount how much sunlight reaches the planet and how much warming occurs because of that getting trapped there by the extra, more than it normally would because of our CO2 emissions. Um, We also have this interesting unnatural experiment that's occurred over the last decade as the IMO, the International Maritime Organization, has tightened standards for bunker fuel. This is what the biggest ships in the world use. It's a very minimally processed oil. They use it to run their diesel engines and the IMO required that they reduce the sulfur content and hence the resultant sulfur dioxide from these ships emissions. And you can actually see in satellite imagery over the last decade, when this regulation goes into effect, the reflectivity. Yeah, so you'll see the reflectivity changes in these patterns going across the ocean. And you'll notice that there's a substantial change in very specific regions like New York to Europe, Shenzhen. Very, It looks very much like this delta in China. It's Shenzhen region from there directly to L.A., and this is exactly where these shipping routes were. So there's actually a measurable, it, it is very good to be clear that the IMO tightened their standards, in my opinion, sulfur dioxide emitted at the surface of the planet has substantial impact on acid rain and other measures that are important for human health. Um, however, a downside of this cleaner resultant emissions is a slight and very slight increase in planetary warming from the reduction in sulfur dioxide being emitted.
0: Which does make the point that we're talking about natural systems, highly complex interactions of of, of phenomena that add up to everything that operates on the planet. And that if you screw around with, that's a technical term, one piece of it, bad or ugly, again, good or bad, you get consequences. It's almost butterfly effect time, right? You get consequences that are unintended or imagined somewhere else, as you just said. Much better that, they've, that the IMO did what
1: they did, but there is a consequence. Yeah, that's, that's accurate. And one of the big um, uncertainties with this is there appears in the modeling, if we do this on a sustained basis, to be a slight but meaningful negative impact on the ozone layer. So basically, we can choose between dropping the world's temperature back into a safe range and a slight reduction maybe in ozone layer. Or we can continue to put our heads in the sand and pretend that uh, we'll violate the laws of physics by magically scaling up direct air capture and clean energy in a way that, you know, the data over the last several decades uh, shows is not happening.
0: Let's come back to the big picture in a moment,
1: but tell me what you guys are actually doing. Yeah, so we sell cooling credits and a cooling credit is something that we invented. It's like a carbon credit, but instead of dealing with CO2 levels, we just directly deal with temperature. And one cooling credit is roughly based on the best science that we've been able to find. And we explain the scientist math and what we're using. One cooling credit is a commitment by us to deliver one gram of sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. So at or above 20 kilometers. And what that represents in terms of cooling is roughly the same amount of cooling as one ton of CO2 produces in terms of warming for one year. It's important for people to remember that they're not equivalent timescales. So we talk about a ton year, as some others in in the carbon credit space do. And frankly, as everyone, if they're being honest, should do.
0: Okay, so you're delivering cooling credits. How are you doing that? How are you creating cooling
1: credits? It's, uh, it used to be a more exciting and dramatic process. We used to make our own sulfur dioxide by burning and then trying rather unsuccessfully to capture the resultant vapors from burning sulfur. And... Uh, it, you must have loved that. That must have been a, made you real popular on the block. It was, oh, uh, yeah. it was some good photos, definitely. Um, there was, was a, a lot of theatrics. Breaking bad. But uh, now it's... Honestly, it's pretty boring. We open a valve on a tank of sulfur dioxide... And output whatever quantity we'd like into a balloon. We weigh the balloon before adding the sulfur dioxide and then after adding the sulfur dioxide to determine the exact amount. Then we add helium to the balloon until it is as buoyant as we would like. You can measure roughly, and this is what this is what scientific ballooning does all the time with putting up radio songs for measuring weather, and even high school science classes frequently will do, you know, they'll put a camera on a weather balloon and then try to get it back afterwards. So we're basically doing that. We add uh, telemetry and occasionally a camera bundle to it, and then we let it go and track via a GPS linked to a satellite network where the balloon is. We're able to tell based on that with pretty high accuracy, usually within 10 meters, what altitude we achieved. And there is variability based on amount of SO2 we add, exact manufacturing of the balloon, exact amount of helium that we add on the exact height that we achieve. If we're not confident that we have achieved at least 20 kilometers of altitude, which puts us into the stratosphere at any point on the planet. And from where we typically launch in California, we're well into the stratosphere by several kilometers at least. Um, If we're not there, then those don't count as credits. If we are there, then we explain to our customers which specific gram of SO2 on which specific flight represented their cooling credit. So it's a very we're very careful from an MRV perspective about making sure that we're delivering what we say we delivered and that it counts to one specific purchase. So to be clear, how big are these balloons? The smallest that we regularly use, uh, these, these are latex biodegradable weather balloons. They're rated based on the weight of the latex balloon, which also is roughly, you can push the limit a bit, but it's roughly the amount of buoyancy that it can provide. Smallest we use is a 300 gram balloon. The biggest that we've flown is, I think 1, we did one. Yeah, we did a 1600, and we have yeah. several 3000 gram balloons. We haven't flown them yet. Um, when we can safely do so and be confident that we are either flaring or reusing or otherwise ameliorating the greenhouse gas effects of hydrogen, we'll in the future we'll switch to hydrogen, and then we'll we'll get more aggressive with larger balloons as well. Uh,
0: I want to come back to the future, but let's just make sure um, we understand. So, you the balloon is launched uh, with uh, sulfur dioxide and helium. It gets into the stratosphere, and then it explodes. It you, you it self explodes. You you have to pop it. The radiation pops it.
1: But what, what makes it? deliver its payload. Yeah. So, Andrew, if you wanna if you wanna tackle that.
2: So, uh, I mean, just like how um, when the balloon gets higher, essentially the air pressure gets less and less. And so the balloon just naturally expands from the helium pushing it out. And so the way that the balloon is manufactured is it is to terminate its flight. And so generally it takes anywhere from two, two to three hours to get up to the, to the intended uh, altitude and then it'll just uh, explode. And so we can share some videos if um, people want to see that as well. Maybe we can put them
0: on the website uh, when we publish so that at least people that come to the Telberg website could could see the videos. I think that'd be really cool. Uh, So that delivers the uh, sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere. Uh, How long before it dissipates?
1: So, again, exact atmospheric science isn't, one, fully understood, and two, varies. But within a few months, we'll start to see the reflectivity occur. And then depending on where we launch, we'll get one to three years and exactly which altitude we achieve, we'll get one to three years of lifetime for these particles. So one of the exciting details that you know, makes us very enthusiastic about this and that people might not at first understand is that we're not doing, unlike with CO2 emissions, unlike with humanities, geoengineering of the troposphere via all our CO2 emissions over the last hundreds of years, we're not doing something with a lifetime of decades to hundreds or thousands of years, we're doing something with a lifetime of two to three years. So we have this very normal in startup land, but um, egregious to a lot of the experts in the field, hypothesis that as we do things at a small scale, we'll learn, and as we scale up, we'll adapt.
0: Uh, One last question about where you are so far, and you just touched on scale, and and that was going to be the question. How much have you done so far, and what is your ambition?
2: So we've done roughly about twenty-eight balloon launches uh, since October 2022, and offset the warming effect of four thousand seven hundred uh, tons of CO. The warming effect of four thousand seven hundred ish tons of CO two for about a year, and that's equivalent to about uh, another way to put that, um, just to. Have people understand? It's like planting two hundred thousand fully grown trees that last for a year and then just vaporize. And what's the ambition?
1: The ambition is to cool Earth by a measurable amount within the next several years, and to cool Earth by at least one C within the next twenty years. If that's your global ambition,
0: if I can use the word. Uh, what do you think, you you guys who make up make sunsets, your company? What is, your is this? You've done 28 balloons. You want to do 50 balloons a year, 100 balloons a year, a thousand balloons a year. Is it do you think in those terms or you're just going to do as much as you can when you can?
1: We're going to do as much as we can when we can. And we're going to stay in business until the world catches up with this. Um, our our conservatism fiscally almost matches our ambition globally. So you're talking to the entire Make Sunsets team on this call. Um, from our offices, aka homes. And our burn rate is very low. We have about 3 years and probably more if we cut it close um, of runway left. And you know, we have paying customers. They're not covering our costs, but we have a very real number of customers who are paying for this. We'll grow that as quickly as we can. And um, there's a very real chance that as crazy as it sounds, we'll get to profitability, A, a more important than the profit, aka able to Sustain this indefinitely within the next two to three years before we run out of money, just based on growing with our our early true believers, you know, $30, $40, three, four grams of cooling credits at a time, coupled with some companies and some countries who will eventually decide to do something meaningful about global warming rather than what we hear right now, which, you know, Greta Thunberg is right. It's basically blah, 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 and empty pledges and not nearly enough to, I mean, to even put a dent in greenhouse gas emissions, let alone actually address the problem at the scale that we need.
0: Thanks for listening so far. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I have. If you haven't already, please subscribe on the platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcast. Now back to today's discussion, sponsored by the stavros Niarchos Foundation, SNF. Clearly, you guys aren't the only ones working in this space, although what you're doing is, I don't know if it's unique, but it it certainly is unusual because you're actually doing it. Uh, But Craig, there's a lot of people who are thinking about SRM. There's even some testing it. There's a lot of computer modeling going on. Do you stay in touch with others in the field? Is there a community of whether scientists or engineers or neither of the above, uh, who are actively trying to develop this kind of project? Is there a collaboration going on, either intellectual collaboration or otherwise? And if so, how, 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 how do you
1: participate in that? Yeah, there's some, but there's not as much as I'd like to see. And I mean that both with us and more broadly. And also, there's not as many people taking part in this conversation and doing experiments as there should be. This is the reason that we're so excited about this is this is the one category of technology, specifically solar radiation management, that during our lifetime can maintain a livable world from a climate perspective. Livable as in most, we can have at or near our carrying capacity that we currently have for a number of species, number of people, et cetera, and not have, you know, hellish weather events every month for most people, most places. Um, uh, Scientists we really respect summarized it recently as solar radiation management can offset most of the effects. Based on the modeling, solar radiation management can offset most of the effects of climate change for most people most of the time. And if that's not exciting and motivating to listeners to at least explore this more and ideally, you know, Fund it and start their own companies or nonprofits in it and research it. Then, you know, I don't know, I don't know what will get people excited about a tool to actually fight climate change.
2: And and the way that the the scientists, uh, um, you know, you know, categorize us, we're the tip of the spear. Uh, these scientists have been working since you know the early eighties, seventies, uh, doing the modeling, doing the research, building the shaft, but they don't have the pointy end, and so we have pierced that veil. Um, a, a scientist that we really respect, we can't, we can't disclose who, saying that we might unlock the, lo- the logjam that has been the discourse between the scientific community to actually try and do something and working together to do so. So
0: as far as you know, to be precise, nobody else is actually putting uh, materials into the stratosphere in an effort to achieve this
1: effect. There's one researcher in the UK who claims to also, and I believe him. Uh, for whatever that's worth, claims to have also done some small-scale experiments. Uh, I believe the largest that he claimed was in the tens of grams. As far as I can tell, we appear to have been the first or second people ever to do this. Um, In fact, the big motivation for me to start this company was seeing the lack of progress at actually doing field trials that um, one of the most brilliant scientists who I've been lucky enough to speak with and read about David Keith at formerly at Harvard now at Chicago along with a bunch of funding from the Gates Foundation or Bill Gates directly I think um, and I think 10 years or so of working towards it on his ScopeX project was unable because you know interpretations vary some variation of politics no technical thing got in the way but because of some politics was unable even with all that funding and as a very brilliant scientist to do even a small test release of particles into the stratosphere. So after I read that and thought about this more and spoke to some more people, um, you know, that's when I ordered my first couple hundred dollars of balloons and a tiny bag of gardening amendment sulfur and decided to, to see if I could just do this.
0: Has anyone come knocking on your door and saying, oh, you need a permit? Or oh, you are not in compliance. You're in California, which regulates almost everything, near as I can tell.
1: How do you have? They not noticed you? Oh, we've we've definitely been noticed. And um, initially, I initially I would say you know I, I'm fairly confident based on our research and talking to experts in the field that we're not bringing any laws, etc. Now I will say that we have, we are definitely noticed. Uh, the Closest anyone has come to laws that we're breaking is we did a launch with a national TV news network filming from Berkeley Marina and got an email from the Berkeley Marina to not do commercial activity on Marina property. This is in Berkeley, one of the most regulated places in one of the most regulated, for better and worse, in my opinion, states in the world. Um, We also got notified by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration that we were violating or potentially violating the Weather Modification Act uh, law from the 70s that requires you to not ask permission, but simply to report when you're doing any activity that you think modifies the weather. So we talked to their lawyers and what matters is the intention. So even we did a small event where we let people release like children's party latex balloons in San Francisco, like literally nine inch diameter with less than a gram of chalk dust, calcium carbonate in them which is another particle that people use or have talked about for SRM, because our intention in doing that in releasing a single nine-inch balloon was to modify the climate, which NOAA counts as the weather, every single one of those balloons is subject to reporting. However, the oil and gas refineries emitting tons of sulfur dioxide directly into the troposphere and hence producing material amounts of air pollution at breathable levels, because their intent is not to... Modify the weather. They are not subject to reporting. So, as far as I can tell, technically, if you cast a spell and intend to have it modify the weather, you, like us, will have to file a report with NOAA. But if you're a major airline or anyone else submitting far more of the same chemical than we do, as long as you don't claim to want to modify the weather with it, you don't have to report. So, long long rant. Short. Uh, we've had some. We've had enough attention and enough dealings with the relevant regulatory agencies that we are quite confident we are fully in compliance with the law.
0: Part of what comes to mind, of course, is we had a few months ago, the famous or infamous Chinese weather balloon incidents, uh, which made everyone realize there's all sorts of stuff floating around the country up there. Now, yours is at a higher level, I understand. Uh, But I would imagine that bureaucracies being what bureaucracies are, That someone in Washington is beginning to tune up their radar and saying, "Hey, we need to regulate this," but you're not concerned. You're not concerned that that's yet had an impact on you. So you're confident
1: you can continue. I mean, in terms of regulation and geopolitics broadly, um, I think that there are plenty of people with plenty of concerns. Um, I hope that some more of them will have a little more modesty around it, like I do, and admit that we have no idea what will happen geopolitically. The world is a very weird place. Too often, particularly scientists who are experts in the actual physical science of this will decide to become social scientists and comment on what they think the geopolitical implications 20 years down the line might be. And I don't know, they might be right, but sure sounds like it's a convenient excuse for many people far more qualified than us. To avoid taking the action that you know they they know they should
0: oh when you raise this issue with people in washington or in berlin or in tokyo you get all sorts of governance questions Uh, and the short answer is there is no governance globally that is thinking about this and all sorts of ethics questions and the ethics so let's go to the ethics for a second Um, I suspect you've been asked what right do you have to do this uh, when there's potentially unknown consequences, the butterfly effect uh, that um, that are beyond your ability to manage?
1: Yeah, after this phone call, I'm going to turn on my pickup truck and drive to an airport, and that that geoengineering has no meaningful global regulation is the problem. And if we could, I mean, if we'd put a price on carbon globally that was meaningful back in the 90s, or maybe even in the early 2000s, we wouldn't, we could not be in this position, we could have fixed this problem with global governance of geoengineering, including carbon dioxide emissions. But we didn't. And if we if we do that, then yeah, if there's global governance of geoengineering broadly, that is competent and having any meaningful impact, then like Andrew and I can Happily go work on something less controversial, a.k.a. anything else that I could think to work on. Um, we used to um, sell software and hardware. So. <laughs> right. Until then, we can't use the lack of governance as an excuse not to take action. And let me be clear, this is unlike marine cloud brightening and some other technologies that people talk about. This is not something where directionality is unclear. Marine cloud brightening, from my limited understanding, depending on the exact droplet size, it's unclear whether putting clouds of salt water via pumps above the ocean, whether that will increase or decrease net global temperatures. Many think, and some models indicate that it will actually increase if the particle size is too large, it may actually increase net global temperatures. We are not like that. No one debates the directionality of whether putting sulfur dioxide into the stratosphere creates cooling. It's not like we're going to do this and suddenly the world will be warmer. It's a the direction is very clear and that that's what gives me so much confidence in us moving forward at the small scales that we're at and you know based on the the leading scientists we talk to no one has meaningful objections about unintended side effects up to well up to half a degree celsius. I'm quite confident that we can cool the world consistently by 0.5 C without any real surprises. Above that, people talk about some things that we'll want to, you know, monitor and be careful about, but up to that amount, which is to be clear, it's a really boring number that if we could snap our fingers or spend, you know, a couple billion dollars a year globally and have the world be on average half a degree celsius cooler, that is a very substantial savings in lives, in species, in ecosystems, and least importantly, by far, in dollars. You've mentioned this earlier, but let's to make that
0: point relevant to listeners. What would it take to
1: actually cool by half a degree? Uh, between 2 and $20 billion annually ongoing, depending on delivery method. If you are a military or a country with or an individual with a healthy enough relationship with the US or Western militaries to buy uh, surplus MIGs or other last generation, uh, several different last generation and current generation um, airplanes are capable just barely of getting up to this altitude that we need into the stratosphere. Or if you wait five to 10 years to start deploying um Several friends will have next-generation supersonic aircraft for business travelers, which will... The supersonic doesn't matter, but those planes fly high enough. They're, they typically fly into the stratosphere, which is what we need. So if you wait for aircraft... We have, we have no religion around balloons, to be clear. They're fun, but you know, we have religion around creating as much cooling as quickly, safely, and cost-effectively as we can, and you know, if it's not balloons, it's not balloons. If it is cool, I, I strongly suspect that at the megaton scale, which is what we need to get to, um, to have a substantial amount of cooling, I suspect that at that scale, balloons are unlikely to be the delivery mechanism that makes the most sense. So, to put a
0: period at the end of the sentence, um, clearly, the scale at which you can work today is not going to get you there. Uh, in a, in the truest sense, you're piloting by to quote an old advertising adage, uh, just doing it. My interpretation of what I've what we've talked about for the last half hour is that you firmly believe both that what you're doing is good, but also that if you do it, it will help push the envelope and the scale could follow. Yeah, I think you're. Raise enough money to, to to buy hypersonic jets. Yeah, I
2: mean, that's what the market will, if the market will bear, the market will bear it, right? At the end of the day, as Luke has said, we have about two to three years of runway. And so if we are not able to uh, get enough people to buy these cooling credits, either through individuals, corporations, or governments, uh, we go away. And so um, it's, if people want this, uh, if people don't want this, then the, clearly the market has decided.
0: I'm less confident in the market and its decisions these days. Um, Than I am in a lot of other things. So let me end there and say that it's absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, I'm not a scientist. I know a little bit more about what this is than I did at the start. So I I appreciate both what you're trying to do um, and your willingness to spend time with us today to try to help us understand what you're trying to do and why it's so important to do it. Thanks for taking the time, Alan.
2: Thank you so much, Alan. Really, really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of New Thinking for a New World. I'm Alan Stoga, podcast host, and I look forward to your joining our next conversation. Remember, tell us what you think at TelbergFoundation.org.